It's quite wonderful to be here and to see your faces. And I cannot begin without uh, bringing greetings and expressions of love from the congregation of Grace Reformed Baptist Church and from the pastors there. You are regularly in our church prayers. Your name is frequently and your cause and concerns are frequently discussed among the pastors of the church. Uh, you are dear to us, and so I bring you warmest greetings. Some time ago, Pastor Hendricks made a statement that has stayed with me for some years, and it was to this effect. It was the chief purpose of every Christian minister is to make people acquainted with Christ and then to bring people to him, send people to him, somehow bring people to him that they might receive grace from Christ. And that's what I would like to do this morning from this text that Ben read earlier in Luke chapter 7. So I ask you to turn, please, to Luke chapter 7. And may it please the Spirit of God to freshly acquaint us with the Lord Jesus and to make him precious to us and for him to give fresh grace to us. Now, if you children were asked to preach from this passage, it would be interesting to me to know just how you would approach the passage. So let me see if this is the way you might approach the passage. I'd like this to be very simple. I'd like us to first consider the main characters in this passage. And then I would like, secondly, to consider the main events in the passage. And then third, to consider some lessons from the passage. So the main characters in the passage, children, who would the main character be? You'd not be surprised for me to say that the main character is the Lord Jesus himself. The second character is Simon, the Pharisee. And the third character is the woman who is said to be known as the sinner in the village that she lived in. So let me ask you to think with me about these three characters just for a moment. Jesus was a young man of about 31 years old. And I encourage you to think in your mind of someone that you know who's right there in his early 30s. Jesus was about 31 years old. He was a vigorous man. He was fresh in his public ministry. He had lived in some degree of seclusion for most of his life. He had been raised in the small village of Nazareth. And we don't know very much about that period of, of his life. But about a year and a half before the event in this passage, Jesus knew it was time to make his public appearance. And Jesus began in the villages around Nazareth and Galilee. Jesus began to go into the villages and towns around there and preach. And he preached the gospel. He preached the kingdom of God. And Luke records in Luke chapter 4, where early in this time, Jesus went home to his hometown of Nazareth. Try to imagine a little village. He went home to his hometown of Nazareth. Everybody knew him. They would have known him as a boy. They would have known him as a young man. They would have known his parents, Mary and Joseph. But he goes into the synagogue at home in Nazareth and he reads, he's asked to read, he reads from the Old Testament scriptures regarding the coming of the Christ, regarding the coming of the Messiah. And he reads this text of scripture and then he says, basically he says, I have fulfilled this scripture in your presence today. And the people are taken back by that kind of a statement. 
It's a, it's a violent story at the end. The people in the synagogue at the end are ready to stone him. They don't believe that he is the Christ. They don't believe that he is the Messiah. Well, Jesus begins to demonstrate again and again and again that in fact he is this one that the Old Testament scriptures said would come. And one of the proofs that he would come, one of the proofs of his presence, was that he would heal and perform stunning miracles. That's the prophecy of the Old Testament, so Jesus did that. Jesus went around the area healing, he healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, causing the deaf to hear. And the effect of his preaching and of these miracles was stunning. People were amazed at him. Not necessarily everybody believed him, but they were stunned and amazed and awed by him. People began to follow him around. There's a record, in, in, again in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 5, where there are so many people trying to get to him, bringing sick people to him, believing that he would heal them. The record in that passage is where some men bring their friend, a paralytic, to Jesus. They bring him on a bed or a cot, and they can't get through the crowd to get Jesus to see him. So they go up on the roof, and they break open the roof, and they allow their friend, they lower their friend down, and Jesus does something on this occasion that it has, was not recorded before. Maybe it happened before, but it wasn't recorded before. Jesus said that he had the power to forgive his sins. It wasn't only that Jesus could heal him and make him walk out of, out of his cot, but he said he would forgive his sins. And people were sobered by that. Some of them murmured that only God can forgive sins. If you know this passage, it must have been a stirring moment because Jesus says, which is harder? Which is harder to say that your sins are forgiven or to say, arise and walk? Uh, you think about that. Anybody can say your sins are forget, forgiven, and who knows? If it could just be a lunatic talking. But if somebody says, rise up and walk to a paralytic, and the man rises up and walks, then you know you have somebody special in your presence. So he asked, which is harder? And so he said to the man, rise up and walk, and he did. And then he told him that his sins were forgiven. Well, this kind of thing is going on in Jesus' background. Jesus comes to the city of Nain. This is where the event takes place that we just read in, in chapter 7. Jesus comes to the city of Nain. And as he's coming into the town, there's a funeral procession. And there's a woman weeping at this funeral because the one being buried is her son. It's her only son. And she's weeping over him. And Jesus has compassion on that woman and goes and he causes this dead boy to live. Now look in chapter 7, if your Bibles are open to, to Luke chapter 7. Look at the response to this resurrection, really, in, John, in Luke chapter 11. Verse 14, Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and they has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Now this is not some kind of cheap horror film where you see a coffin and a dead body pops up. Nothing like that. This is not some kind of a cheap show. Jesus is demonstrating who he is. He's the son of God. He has power to heal. He has power over death. He has power to raise people from the dead. And the people's response was awe at this. 
Now, this is in the town of Nain. And in this town, so there's a record of some more things happening. But the effect of all these miracles, this, this raising this boy from the dead, the effect is that there's immense division about Jesus. Some people see him as the prophet. Some people see him as the Messiah, the Christ. Other people reject him. And in the text, you appreciate that the people who receive him are for the most part the ordinary people. And the people who were more elite, the people who are regarded as the religious leaders, they're the ones who largely reject Jesus. Well, in our passage in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, you have, you have one, people, one person from each of these groups. You have Simon, who's the Pharisee, and you have this woman who's known as a sinful woman. These groups of people, some who are receiving Jesus and some who are rejecting him, they are there in this story. So this is Jesus. Jesus has presented himself as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the one who has power of life and death and can forgive sins. Now, the second person in the, in the account is Simon, a Pharisee. He was the leader. A Pharisee would be a leader of one of the most strict, one of the most conservative sects of Judaism. He would have been known as a moral man, at least outwardly. He has some degree of curiosity about Jesus. It'd be hard to be in the city of Nain and not have some curiosity about Jesus after these things had taken place. So he invites, Simon invites Jesus to his home. And he has a dinner where Jesus is invited. It doesn't seem that Jesus was especially honored. Simon doesn't treat him with any dignified manner. He doesn't offer to wash his feet. He doesn't do the things that normally would be done to, to a guest. He's not a good host. But he has some interest in Jesus. He invites Jesus to his home for this dinner. He had, he, had a, he had a curiosity, at least, about the Lord Jesus. He didn't love the Lord. And that will come out in the, as the passage unfolds. This woman loved the Lord, but this man, Simon, did not love the Lord. And there are lots of people like Simon who have some degree of interest in Jesus, but they don't love him. And there may be persons here who have some degree of interest in Jesus. You've heard about him. You've seen something of how he transforms people's lives, perhaps in your friends. You have some knowledge, some degree of interest, but you don't, in fact, love him. Well, if you're in that category, pay a special attention to, to Simon. To pay, pay a special attention to what Jesus says to Simon. The third person, the, the first character is Jesus. The second is Simon. The third person is the woman. In verse 37 and 39, he Perhaps noted this as Ben was reading in verse 37 and verse 39. She was known in the city as a sinner. Look again at verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Again in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who... Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon viewed this woman with contempt. Whatever she was, she was known in the village. She was known in the town as a sinner. She was a certain kind of woman, according to him. Everyone knew her to be this certain kind of woman. Whatever her sins were, she had a public reputation as a sinful person. 
Tradition says that she was a prostitute. If so, then she knew a great deal about being degraded, about being used. Her life would have been full of disappointments. And in the Jewish society, especially in those small town Jewish societies, she would certainly have been an outcast and the object of scorn. But she had come, this woman had come to love Jesus. Verse 47, in the whole passage, she had come to love Jesus. Now, we're not supposed to believe that in that feast she came to love Jesus. Before she came, she came to the feast because she wanted to find him. She came to the feast because she did love Jesus. All these things that are going on in her town, all this preaching, all these miracles, this boy being raised from the dead, she knew something about Jesus in the past. She knew that he had healed the sick, and she knew that he would have touched untouchable lepers. She knew that he had shown compassion for all kinds of sinners. She knew that he was hobnobbing with and welcoming the lowest members of society to himself. She would have known all of that. And maybe she even heard him in some of his sermons. Maybe she heard him say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. She knew something of Jesus and she had come to love Jesus. She was drawn to him. She believed him. She trusted him and she loved him. And now in this social setting, as awkward as it must have been for her, now she's going to show her love to Jesus. So those are the three characters. The Lord himself, Simon, and the sinful woman. Now second, let's go to the main events. And there are a number of main events. There are three primarily. There are five that are worthy of note And the last two we're going to just briefly mention. These main events. The first, of course, what would you say is the main event? The the first and the main event of this passage is the woman's extraordinary display of love. Her extraordinary, her almost extravagant display of love, even of humility. The text begins in chapter 7, verse 37. Behold, wake up, pay attention as, as Luke wrote this. When, when he is reflecting back on the event and he writes this, he introduces with a, look at this, behold, in the original language, behold. Well, what he is asking the reader to observe is something that was very extraordinary. This, what this woman did was an extraordinary thing. When she learned that Jesus was there, when she learned that, she found him. She went into this place, she went into the Pharisee's home, and she found him. She was so affectionately desirous of being with him and coming to him that she broke all the bounds of propriety and burst into this Pharisee's party, into his dinner, into his home, and he, she goes and she finds him. Now, you can imagine, maybe you can't imagine, maybe some of you can imagine, it would be a pretty withering experience for a woman known in the village as a sinner. It would be a pretty withering experience for such a woman to go into the presence of these of these Pharisees, of these moralists. You can imagine that she didn't feel comfortable in their presence. It would have been a withering and humiliating experience for her to expose herself to this social group. But she did it nonetheless. She found Jesus and she stood behind him. Perhaps you have enough familiarity with the the stories of the Bible or with the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day to appreciate that in that setting they would have been reclining at the meal The tables would have been low to the floor. The people would lean on their right arms usually. They would lean toward the table and their 
bodies would be out away from them and they'd be eating their food with their right hand. Well, she wants to come to him, to Jesus, in that posture. All she could really get to is his feet. She'd have to stand on the table to get to his face or to his hands. So she comes up by his feet and she stood behind him. And she had intended to to go and to break open this flask of expensive perfume. But before she can do it, she breaks down. She starts weeping. She, She goes with the intention of anointing his feet with this oil, but she begins to weep according to verse 38. And the, it's, a, it's a peculiar word here that is translated weep. It's a word that's not just tears streak. It's, it's the idea of wailing. It's the idea of making a lot of noise. Weeping, wailing. It's the same word that was used to describe the, <clears throat> the mother's weeping as she was going with his funeral procession, weeping and wailing. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, it's this word that just not little... It's not a little little tearing up. It's not just the eyes filling up with water. This woman, she's coming up to anoint Jesus' feet and she just bursts into these uncontrollable sobs and wailings. There's a kind of emotional outburst that has a degree of agony connected to it. What, What was going on in her mind? Well, Luke doesn't tell us what was going on in her mind. Was she at that moment just overcome with how unworthy that she was and that she would be loved by this person. What, what, what was going, whatever was going on in her mind, she broke down in weeping. She wept profusely. She wept so much that it says the streams of her tears were enough to wash Jesus' feet. And the word that's used, that's translated to wash, is the idea that her tears rained down on Jesus' feet. Can you try to, t- try to think of what an emotional moment that was? It's, uh, you know yourselves, what makes you cry. Have you ever cried so many tears that the tears could have moistened someone's feet and that you actually could have washed his feet with your tears? This is something that's really extraordinary that is being recorded here. This woman was overcome with emotion. The wells, the wells of her feelings were broken open and so much crying and noisy wailing was going on, so much so much emotion that tears are raining down from her face upon Jesus' feet. And she undoes her hair, and she's able to actually dry her, dry his feet with her tears. Then he does, she does anoint his feet, and she kisses and kisses and kisses and kisses his feet. And you can imagine that the crowd is stunned by this. Here you are, a nice Pharisee. Nice moralist, you got all your moralist friends around you, and this sinful woman breaks in and creates this kind of a scene. Well, that, that takes us to the second main event. That's the first main event, her extraordinary expression of love. The second main event is the response of, of Simon. Simon's response. How do you think he regarded this scene? Well, Simon doesn't say anything, everybody's quiet. You look at verse 39 and it says, Now when the Pharisees who had invited him, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, Simon did. Simon, Simon thought, Simon spoke to himself. Nobody is talking. The whole place is quiet, having observed this intrusion of the woman. So Simon speaks to himself. He was scandalized by this woman. He was critical of her. Charles Spurgeon preached several sermons from this passage and he wrote that 
The Pharisee had an insufferable contempt for this woman. An insufferable contempt. So he's full of, he's full of contempt for her. What she had done is totally inappropriate. is way beyond immodest. It's totally unacceptable to him that this immoral woman has come into his house and done this. But his primary concern is not with, his primary criticism is not with that woman. His primary criticism is with Jesus. Bear with the reading again of verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If he were a prophet, he would have known. Two things. He would have known what kind of a woman she was, and he wouldn't have let her touch him if he were really a prophet. You remember in chapter 7, in verse, I believe, 16, there is this, this thought that he must be a prophet. What he's doing, what he's doing, he must be a prophet. Well, maybe, the, maybe this Pharisee Simon had, that was in his mind, but he said, well, he's clearly not a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would have known what kind of a woman this was. He would have known it, and he would not have allowed her to touch. Simon totally misunderstood Jesus. Totally, he totally misunderstood him. It's almost the reverse of his logic. His logic is if, if he were a prophet, he would have known that woman. The real logic is because he's the Christ, he knew that woman. Because he's the Christ, that's the kind of woman he wanted. Because he's the Christ, he's willing to forgive the worst kinds of sinners. Simon completely misunderstood Jesus. So you have her extravagant display of love. You have Simon's response. And the third main event is you have Jesus' response to Simon. And that gets a lot of attention, verses 40 through 48, is Jesus' response to Simon. Now, it's been several minutes ago that Ben read the passage. I don't expect that you just have it all in your memory from his reading of it. So let's go back and look at what Jesus said to Simon. Remember, Simon has not spoken. Jesus has read his thoughts. So in chapter 7, verse 40, Jesus answered answered his thoughts. Jesus answered his thoughts and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So Simon said, teacher, say it. And the first thing that Jesus does is tells this parable. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now that's a huge difference between them. A denarii is basically a day's wage. So here is a man, he is in debt 500 days Wage. Another guy is in debt 50 days wage. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? You can hardly miss the correct answer, right? Which, which one is going to love him more? The one who owes, five is, who owes 500 or the one who owes 50 days of work? Well, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. So here's this, Jesus' response is first of all a parable. He gets Simon to acknowledge that of course, the one who is forgiven the most is going to be the most grateful. The one who is forgiven the most is going to be the one who loves the most, of course. But then Jesus goes beyond making a parable and he makes an application. He turned to the woman Now imagine that Simon is over here and the woman is sort of off now on the side. He turns to the woman 
but he's speaking to Simon. He turns his face to the woman. He wants the woman to be in everybody's perspective, but he's not speaking to her. He's speaking to Simon. He answered in this verse 44. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Like, have you really looked at this woman? Do you see this woman? And then he makes these contrasts between what you didn't do for me and what this woman did do for me. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. It would have been quite ordinary in an oriental culture for people to greet, especially in a situation like this, a kiss on the cheek. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. She didn't kiss him once. Apparently she kissed his feet and kissed his feet and kissed his feet and she just didn't stop kissing his feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which also would have been customary in that part of the world at that time. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, now he's still, he's still talking to Simon, but he's, he's looking at the woman. And he says to Simon, therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, some misread this passage. Some misread this. Some think that Jesus is saying the reason that she's forgiven is because she loves. Some, some understand this passage quite incorrectly to say she's forgiven, and the reason she's forgiven is she be, the, the, the love is the evidence that she's forgiven. If you wake up one morning and you look out and you say, to your wife or your, to your husband, it rained last night, for the sidewalk is wet. What are you saying? The wet sidewalk is the evidence that it rained last night. Well, he's looking at this woman, he's seeing this extravagant love, and he's, he's, he's making the point, she's been forgiven a lot because you see the evidence in that she loves such a great deal. And Jesus assures this woman of pardon In verse 47 and in verse 48, he assures this woman of pardon. He says to Simon that her sins are forgiven. Then in verse 48, he says to her, he says directly to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, the events of this passage are as remarkable as the people. This extravagant display of love. Simon's response in his heart. Jesus' response to Simon. He puts Simon down and he he makes this big declaration about love and forgiveness. And again and again, three times. Once to Simon, twice to the woman. He assures her that her sins are forgiven and that she is saved. It's an exciting passage. So the... The main characters, the main events. And now I'd like us to look at the lessons that that we should draw from this passage. And all the lessons, I believe, are are pretty straightforward. I believe if most of you are called upon to make applications from this passage, you'd look at it a couple more times and and you'd make the same applications that I'm going to make. 
The first, of course, is that Jesus saves morally bankrupt, morally needy people. It's not enough to say that Jesus saves such people. You really have to say that Jesus loves it. You have to say that Jesus delights to save such people. The Gospel of Luke was written by Luke uh, some decades after the events, maybe in the 60s, but some decades after the events. By the time that Luke writes this, Luke has been traveling around the Mediterranean world with the Apostle Paul. They have gone way beyond the Jewish cities, the Jewish centers. They've gone to the great pagan centers of of that part of the world. They've gone to Athens, they've gone to Corinth, they've gone to Rome. And they have seen Gentile sinners of every sort stream in to the church. And some scholars think one of the primary reasons that the Gospel of Luke was written was for that great ingathering of sinful people across the ancient world, for them to have the sense of assurance that Christ has come to save the Gentiles, that Christ has come to save very sinful people. There's no reason to think that this woman was a Gentile. She's in a Jewish city. But she is described in contrast to the religious leader as a sinner, bad woman in the city. Everybody knew it. Well, this is, this is so, one of so many passages in the Gospel of Luke that are records of Jesus going to the people that were regarded as really morally messed up. Not the nice guys, you know, not the nice women, not the nice men, but the really bankrupt men and women of his society, reaching them. Jesus does that. I, I'd like to just refer you to this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9, this is where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Remember what I just said? Paul, Paul, Luke is with Paul. Paul is going to all these awful places. and these, These people that the Jews would have considered to be really immoral, horrible people, they're coming to Christ, they're being forgiven. Well, Paul writes to one of those churches. It's the church in Corinth. And just notice what he says about them. Do not be deceived, he writes to the church. Imagine Alex writing, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, that phrase, and such were some of you. He knew that congregation, Paul did. And he writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was doing that when he, before his death upon the cross and before his resurrection. Jesus was going out and searching for very sinful people and drawing them to himself. And when Paul and others began to preach the gospel in the Gentile world, that's the kind of people that were coming. And he could say to that Corinthian church, that's what you guys were like. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been forgiven. You've been justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus does. And he delights to do it. Jesus was the perfect representation of his father. And I suppose many of you would know, I hope you would all know perhaps, this wonderful statement about God in Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnants. He does not retain his anger forever. And why does he do that? Why does he forgive? Why does he not stay angry? Because he delights in mercy. Well, Jesus is the perfect representation of his father. 
It gives the Father delight to forgive people. And you can imagine this incident in the city of Nain in Luke chapter 7 made the Lord Jesus very happy to pronounce forgiveness upon this woman that everybody there regarded as a sinner. Jesus saves morally needy people. And he delights to do so. And that is surely one of the largest lessons of the book of Luke itself. It's one of the largest lessons of this particular uh, story. And it's one of the largest lessons of, of what all, all the things that he did in the city of Nain. But there are people, sadly, who are like Simon, who have no sense of need, and they regard themselves as okay. It was to people like Simon on another occasion that Jesus said that he had not come to save the righteous, but that he had come to bring salvation to sinners. He had not come for the righteous, he had come to save sinners. Now, somebody like Simon who regards himself as fine, may at some point begin to realize that, like the Apostle Paul, that even though, even though I've kept the law in an outward way, inwardly I am in fact shameful. Well, if Simon ever came to that point, if he ever came to that point, don't read anything more about this man, if he ever came to that point later where he was ashamed of himself and realized that he was in fact before God quite a sinner, if he ever became like the Apostle Paul, where he realized that all my obedience is like nothing, if he ever, he might have remembered this account of how Jesus was so happy to forgive this sinful woman and to announce it right in his home. And you can imagine that if, if that ever happened to Simon, if he ever did come to a point of realizing I'm really a sinner, what happened in his home would have become the focus of his faith. I have heard the Son of God speak to a sinful woman. I have heard him assure her of forgiveness. I'm going to claim that same Savior and that have that same hope that that woman had. The second lesson is the lesson that Jesus ends this story with, and that is that salvation comes through faith, not love. Salvation comes to individuals through their faith, not through their love. Just notice again the way Jesus ends this. All these wonderful events and all the striking things that are said and done, he ends by saying in verse 50, then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now this whole story has been about love. This whole story has been about the connection between being forgiven much and loving much. It exposed Simon as not being forgiven for, any, for anything and not having any love. The whole story has been about love. But it seems that Jesus wants to make pains to end that episode, and Luke makes pains to end the episode on this statement, your faith, not your love, your faith has saved you. And I think it's very important that we go away from this passage with that in our minds. The scriptures everywhere say that we are saved through faith. What is the most famous text in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. It's not whoever loves him. It's not whoever obeys him. That which connects us to Christ is faith. And you've probably heard illustrations like this. That faith 
is like the drowning person who goes limp in the arms of a lifeguard. Faith is where someone believes what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is to be worshipped, that he is to be obeyed, that he is to be loved, that he does forgive sinners. Faith is to believe that. And like the drowning swimmer, to just fall into his arms and say, please save me, please be yourself, please be my Savior as you have promised to be. That's what connects us to Christ. And a lot of A lot of practical fault comes if we get that wrong. Those of you who are Christians, you don't want to look to your love for your assurance. And those of you who are not Christians, you don't want to think, well, the thing for me is to try to be extravagant like this woman, to try to love Jesus in noticeable ways, and if I do that, everything will be fine. In that same sermon by Spurgeon, he makes the point that the soul doesn't begin its ascent with love. It begins with faith. We begin with believing. And in the context of believing, there emerges an awareness of many things. One of those things is an awareness of sin, an awareness of grace. But we don't begin trying to make ourselves love well. We begin with believing. And whether it's weak faith or strong faith, the littlest kind of real faith, the weakest kind of real faith, absolutely, effectively unites you to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the lesson of this passage at the end, even though there's so much about love, the the lesson is just Jesus wants everyone to remember it was her faith, it was her faith through which she was saved. She believed what she had heard from Jesus about himself. And that's what it is for you to believe. It's not to have some kind of faith that is so strong that you're unwavering in the face of some kind of opposition. It's not for you to have some faith that's so dramatic and effective that you can say, remove that mountain skips over. There's strong faith. And there's a lot in the Bible about the need for strong. But the most elementary, faltering, childlike confidence that Jesus is the incarnate God, that he is the Savior of all who come to him, that he, being the incarnate God, should be loved and obeyed and worshipped. Believing that is the gift of God. And believing that is what unites you to everything that is in Christ himself. The third lesson from this text. Again, it's a rather obvious lesson, is it not? The third lesson is that love develops through our sense of forgiveness. That love, love for Christ develops through, it develops in the context of our sense of forgiveness. The measure of our love for Christ, the measure of our of our ardor, the measure of the strength of our love for Christ, the measure of our love for Christ is determined largely by two things, two things that have to be together. One is a sense of the enormity of our sins, and the other, of course, is a sense of wonder that God has so absolutely, so freely, so exhaustively, so completely, so eternally forgiven me. That's the point of this of Jesus' parable. That's the point of what Jesus says to Simon. 
The one who is forgiven the most is the one who loves the most. That same Spurgeon, sermon by Spurgeon, he wrote, The food of love is a sense of sin and a grateful sense of forgiveness. The food of love is a sense of sin and a grateful sense of forgiveness. Now I would imagine for you who are Christians that this rings true to your experience. That when you are in some situation where your inconsistencies and sins, present inconsistencies and sins, in some situation where you're the most ashamed of whatever it is, and in that situation, the Lord opens up to you the wonder of being forgiven, it's in that situation that your love for Christ, your gratitude and your love for Christ is the greatest. Now, we can't really create those situations. Those situations are usually full of of some unplanned emotion where we're really ashamed about something. And in the context of that shame, the Spirit of God comes and reminds us that we're actually forgiven, not on the basis of our consistency, but on the basis of Jesus' atonement. Well, in those situations, sometimes the Spirit just opens all of that to us. And what happens? We love the Lord. And we are so grateful to Him, and we love Him. We can't create those, but you can do this. You can try to discipline your minds to keep awareness, to keep an awareness of the commandments of God and the love of God and the consistency that should be ours, to, be a, to have an awareness of how far we really fall short, not, not to beat yourself up, but just to freshly, day by day, appreciate it's all forgiven. By the grace of God, it's forgiven. If we have small views of sin, we will have small views of the atonement and we'll have very little fervor in our love for Christ. We need to keep those channels open large. You might think that this woman being such a bad person that the whole town knew about it and for whatever those sins were, you might think that for all these big sins everybody knows about, for that woman to be forgiven, it would be so big that of course she would... Well, it is interesting to appreciate that even among many of the Lord's people who would never be characterized like that woman was, who would never be known in the town as the sinner, a lot of the Lord's people would be known in the town as nice folks. But so often those people who are not the great sinners outwardly, they become ashamed of things that are inward. So it's not that you have to be a really great sinner to have a great love. All you have to do is have your eyes open All you have to do is really understand who you are and the thoughts and the motives and the selfishness and even for some people the cruelty and the lust, the things that go on in the mind that you'd be so ashamed if anyone knew you're not regarded as a sinner. Nobody in the town knows you, but you know you are. Well, you don't have to be like this woman to have extravagant love. You just have to see yourself. You have to see who you are by nature and see what your thoughts are and your motives are and how selfish you are. And then to realize that in Christ, you can just be forgiven. You can just be forgiven. And all that should stand up against you and shout at you in the judgment, it's all muted because it's covered by the atoning work of the Lord Jesus. And that, if our eyes are open, should cause us to have very great love. So the main characters, the main events, and the lessons. And this last lesson is that our, the ardor of our love will be increased by our awareness of sin and forgiveness. Let us pray together.
Our Father, we are glad to be with you today. We are glad to have this text of the Bible. We are glad to sing the hymns to you. We are glad for your love and for your mercy, for the gift of your Son. We pray that you would help us to see him more and more clearly as he is presented in the Bible. And we pray that you would help us subjectively to more deeply appreciate his offers of forgiveness and love. And that you would help everyone, that you would cause everyone in this place who does not love Christ, that you would cause them this day to see their sins and to see his grace and to want him. And that you would give them faith to believe in him. And for all of us who do believe in him, we pray that you would reawaken us and cause us to love your son as he deserves to be loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.